Thank you for listening to this forum podcast. Please check out our website for a rich archive of podcasts and writing from contemporary philosophers and other researchers on a wide variety of topics. The Forum is an educational charity dedicated to bringing academic philosophy to a broader audience. Please consider donating to us via our Just Giving page, which you can find on our website. Happy listening. Uh, good evening, everyone. Welcome to the LSE. Thanks very much for coming. And welcome to this pa- uh, panel discussion co-sponsored by the Forum and by the Centre for Philosophy of Natural and Social Science on the social lives of microbes. The background to tonight's event is that recent years have seen extraordinarily rapid developments in our understanding of social interaction in the microbial world among bacteria and other microbial organisms. We'll be discussing in tonight's event how this has transformed our understanding of evolution and how it's transformed our understanding of what it is to be human. We'll be focusing on questions such as what are microbial societies In what ways do they resemble the societies we're familiar with uh, in our own lives? In what ways do they differ? Can the same ideas that explain cooperation in large animals, ideas like kin selection, also explain cooperation in microbes? And what can we learn from microbes about the origins of multicellular organisms like us? What can we learn from microbes about what it is to be a human being? And I'm delighted to be joined by three panellists who in various different ways are at the absolute cutting edge of these debates. They are Sara Mitri, uh, Senior Researcher in Microbiology at the University of Lausanne, uh, Kevin Foster, Professor of Evolutionary Biology at the University of Oxford, and Maureen O'Malley, Research Professor of Philosophy at the University of Bordeaux and author of the book Philosophy of Microbiology. So to give you a sense of the format of tonight's event... Um, as I say, we're focusing on three key questions, about half an hour on each question. In each case, I'll invite one of the panellists to start the discussion off with some prepared remarks. Then we'll have a discussion among the panel, and then I'll invite some questions, comments, contributions from the audience, and then we'll move on. So our first question is this. What are microbial societies? In what ways do they resemble human societies in what ways do they differ? And to introduce us to that question, I'd like to ask Sara Mitri. So when you hear the word microbe, what's the first thing that comes to mind? So maybe you're thinking it might be a pathogen, so a single cell that's sort of lurking somewhere and waiting to infect your body and make you sick. But there are two sort of problems with that, with that image that are not representative of the majority of microbial life. And that's, first of all, that microbes are typically not solitary, so you wouldn't expect to find a single cell on its own. And secondly, most microbes are not pathogenic, so it's really a small percentage that you would expect to, to have harmful effects on human health. So... Microbes are really everywhere. So you can see them, you can find them especially on our own bodies and the bodies of all living organisms, including all animals and plants and so on. And you can, for example, you have whole complex communities inside your mouth, in your nose. It's what makes your feet smell or your armpits. So those would be whole communities of of these diverse microbes. Um, They, of course, are really abundant inside the gut and are important for digesting your food and taking up a lot of vitamins and and different nutrients. Um, And they're also very abundant in 
uh, in non-human environments, such as the, the soil, for example, is full of microbes that also contribute to the growth of different plants. Um, but they're also in our drain pipes, for example, or in the kitchen sponge. And in all of these places, what you need to imagine is a microbial community that is very dense, so with really huge population sizes in the tens or hundreds of millions of individual cells with hundreds or thousands of different species that are all colonizing the same place. So one analogy to think about it is like a, a rainforest, but just on a very... A small scale. So you would have different species that are playing different roles and that are competing essentially for food sources and for space. So it's territory and, and food are the, the main resources that these microbes are competing for and that allow them to grow. Um, so why do we say that microbes are social? So there's a couple of reasons. On the one hand, these um, different cells, they don't just coexist, but they interact with each other a lot. So for example, we have found that they communicate with each other through chemical signals. And one of the most uh, well-known forms of communication is where um, microbes, as they grow, they produce chemicals that others can then detect. And using these chemicals, they can then tell how many cells are around in the environment and the identity of the different, um, the different microbes and the different species that are around in the environment. Um, we've also found that, um, that cells communicate, for example, through uh, electrical signals. So they do produce sort of electrical waves that can be detected or can influence the behavior of others. Um, they connect to each other through pipes that may be used to exchange molecules or to suck out the molecules that are in other cells. Um, they have lots of forms of division of labor. So in a group of cells of different species, you might have one type that's producing um, different sticky substances that keep the group together. You might have some that are harvesting nutrients um, or fighting invading uh, individuals from the outside. So all of this sounds quite cooperative and happy, but in fact, it's not necessarily the case. So there's a lot of aggression as well in, uh, in microbial communities and a lot of conflict. So microbes are the ones who invented antibiotics. So humans just took that invention for our own advantage. But initially, m antibiotics were used by microbes to kill other microbes. And that's still a very abundant use of, of antibiotics in nature. They also have a really uh, charismatic phenotype, which is um, producing these um, spears or swords with which they stab neighboring cells and puncture a hole into them and then take up their, their DNA and basically eat them. Um, so, so yeah, one, one should imagine microbial social lives as being both cooperative to some extent, but also full of conflict and competition. Now, whether microbes are generally nice or nasty to each other is, is still not clear, so it's unclear what, what the general rule is, but it's probably a mix of both. Now, coming to the comparison with, uh, with humans, I would say the biggest difference between microbial societies and uh, human societies is that microbes divide clonally. So when, an, when a microbe grows, it basically grows until it's too big, and then it splits into two identical cells. So many microbial populations will basically be a whole bunch of cells that are identical genetically. And... Um, 
this has a lot of implications that I imagine we'll talk about in the future in terms of co- predicting whether cooperation or conflict will will evolve. Um, but I think the better analogy, and if you look at microbial groups, is to think of them as groups of cells that might make up an animal's body. So in our bodies, we also have big clusters of clonal cells, and that's a bit what the microbes, what the microbial groups would be, except that there's no clear delineation of where one body ends and the next one begins. So you can think of them as just a whole bunch of clonal groups in one space. Thanks very much, Sarah. I'd now like to invite the panel to uh, for their comments on this, um, and then we'll take some questions from the audience. Kevin? Um, yeah, I was guess I was going to make one comment, which is to sort of ask um, rhetorically, um, you know, given that we understand that microbes behave socially, can we think about them uh, differently with how we might treat them or indeed understand uh, better how they cause diseases or other such things? And uh, one very important feature of the fact that microbes are social is the fact that they're um, working together in a way towards a certain end, um, evolutionarily speaking. So, for example, while Sarah is very correct that there's uh, many microbes that are not pathogens, amongst the pathogenic microbes, many of them cause disease by secreting factors that do nasty things like digest our tissues um, or indeed uh, break down antibiotics that we're trying to treat them with. And so one rather exciting and interesting aspect to the discovery that microbes are social is that rather than necessarily just trying to kill them sort of with a sort of uh, typical clinical antibiotic, what we can try and do is actually inhibit their ability to cooperate as a group and sort of uh, break down uh, this sort of sociality and in doing so undermine their ability to cause disease. And so a new strategy in uh, 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 microbial treatment is actually to target uh, their sociality and it's proving rather effective. Um, Okay, so when we were talking uh, just before we came down to give this talk, one of the things I thought was, well, what's the audience thinking here? Why have you come to hear a talk about the social lives of microbes? (laughs) And what I predicted, or what I imagine at least, is that most of you will think, well, microorganisms are germs, they're waging war on us, you know, in the way that you can think, oh, many factors in society, we might have warlike elements and more peaceful elements, and how do they get along, and it's all a great mystery. So I guess I'm curious to hear at some point, maybe in your responses, (laughs) Um, if that's the assumption that you came with, that microorganisms are germs and they're out to get us and we've got to do everything we can to control them. I mean, if that is how people are thinking, then I think we've got some very interesting uh, different ways of uh, 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 theorising about microorganisms that maybe we want to talk about a bit more. Yeah, if I can add maybe to to that and also to what Kevin said before. So if we're talking about how do we treat microbes differently given the knowledge of how these societies work, I think one thing that we've recently understood is, for example, that the use of antibiotics to treat all kinds of diseases is perhaps not such a good idea because given that your body is full of so many microbes and so many that are useful to your health, when you treat with antibiotics, you don't simply kill the pathogen, but you also kill a whole community that's been established and been building up over many years. And that's sort of an important lesson, I think, that's, that's been learned recently like burning the rainforest uh, rather than uh, taking out a specific tree that you don't like. Exactly. And Sarah, you made this comparison between 
societies of microbes and the cells in our own bodies. I mean, we think of the, the cells in our own bodies as being this incredibly harmonious, working together for the good of the, of the whole. Uh, are microbial societies that harmonious? I would say they're harmonious within a clonal group. So as long as they are all exactly the same genetically, then they are expected to cooperate with one another. And as soon as you get mutations, so as these cells divide, you, you can have mutations, such so as mistakes in the copying of the, of the DNA that occur. And as soon as these mutations start to come up, you have the potential for, for conflict that, that comes up within these societies. Thanks, great. So I'd now like to invite some contributions from, from you, the audience, on this issue. I mean, on this question of how do human societies resemble microbial societies, and also, if you like, uh, in answer to Maureen's question of, of why you're here, and do you think of microbes as something that is out to get us? Uh, I'd like to take, ideally, a batch of three questions, and then we'll bring it back to the panel for some answers. Let's start here in the, the second row. Wait for the microphone to come to you so that we catch the question on the recording. Um, and keep your uh, Sarah, when you say that um, you kill a whole host of other bacteria, is that what you call side effects of a medicine? Is it? Yes. yes. Okay, fine. Further questions on this? This one, is it third row? I see the comparison between microbes and ourselves as we live in the world in loads of different niches. We change the world to suit ourselves, to, make up, to allow ourselves to survive, and that's exactly what bacteria are doing within us. They live in us. They may even have helped create us, and they're all different, living in different lives. They don't really have any... They're not trying to kill us or anything. They're just living their lives, and we're trying to live our lives. And I think the comparison is more landscape. We live in a landscape, and we are their landscape. Yes, thoughts on that? Sorry? So I agree at some level we are their landscape, but yeah, in some cases uh, we're also their dinner. Uh, so um, it's not entirely passive. But I think the important thing is that there are vast numbers of microbes in us that are beneficial and is perform specific functions like breaking down our food and uh, providing vitamins and these kind of things. Um, but um, so it's uh, it is a relationship uh, rather than just us them sort of passively sort of existing inside us. If that makes sense. Yeah. But, but I think the interesting thing that introduces is a very ecological way of thinking about our relationships with them. So it's not that they target us, you know, to do harm or anything like that. It's just they're making a living, that living, you know, and they're not thinking humans. I mean, obviously they can't detect human things. There are things out there they're going to eat, things out there they're going to damage. And so we have a very ecological relationship that I think we're going to turn to in the later part of the, um, the discussion that is a very sort of timely scientific perspective, I think. Yeah, if I could add to that as well. I mean, to some extent, we also tame them. So there's more and more evidence that, for example, there are certain chemicals that are secreted inside the gut that can select for certain microbial species and favor them over others. So we are also sort of changing that landscape to our advantage as well as them trying to survive to their advantage. So it's, it is an ecosystem. 
Okay, let's have a couple more questions. Uh, one from the front row and one from the back row, and then we'll move on. Let's start with the front row down here. I'm sorry, I missed the very beginning of your talk, but I imagine you might have said that within clones, there may be what you might call subclones that were behaving differently. So they have the same ancestor, but they are behaving differently. And I wonder to what, to what extent you could extend the idea of epigenetics to that and what mechanisms might be involved in that in bacteria. And let's go straight to the, the back row and then we'll bring both questions back to the panel. Thank you. Uh, Sarah, you said microbes are everywhere. Uh, could you tell us where they're, they're not? At what extremes would you not find any microbes? Great. Thanks very much. Yeah, two very good questions about epigenetics and, and where microbes are not. Sorry. Yeah, so the subgroups question is quite an interesting one because we are finding out more and more that even if groups are clonal, so if they're genetically exactly identical, they might not all be behaving the same. So it seems that within a group, some might be doing one thing and then the others sort of go to a different task. So there is a sort of division of labor within the same clonal group. And then it's not always clear what leads to these differences. So one theory is that it might just be... Um, it might be whatever environment they're sensing at the moment. So if some cells of the same clonal group are experiencing a better environment with more food, then they might be behaving in one way compared to starving cells that are in a different place. So that's one way to divide the labor. And another might be epigenetics. But to be honest, I'm not quite a, an expert on this, but there's, this is something that's, that's being actively studied of how, how these yeah, these genetic effects sort of carry over from previous generations. So the idea of epigenetics is essentially that something that an individual experiences in one generation affects the way that the genes are translated or expressed in future generations. So I, I can speak a little bit to yeah. that if you want. Um, so, yeah, so there's a number of uh, traits that bacteria display where you have this yeah, division, as Sarah said. Um, and then the question is always, if they are a single genotype with the same genome, how is it possible that some cells do one thing or another? And one way, indeed, is that you can get a gradient in a chemical and some respond to it and some don't, you know, external uh, factor. But they also um, often uh, basically flip molecular coins. So they'll do things um, uh, such as have particular molecules in their cell at very, very low numbers, um, uh, such that different cells have different numbers of these molecules just by chance, so just due to chance fluctuations. Um, and then they'll hook up that molecule to a very, very strong positive feedback loop. And so what happens is if you just get a few more of these molecules, then suddenly that cell would turn on the system and then basically blast up the, the frequency of this molecule and switch on a particular function, such as making a toxin or taking in DNA or something like that. Um, and in doing so, they can basically have a single population where some do one thing and one do another, and also it will last across generations because these switches are so incredibly strong and the positive feedback is so strong, they'll be maintained for quite a long time. So um, they do have these abilities to sort of divide their labor, and it's done in sort of various ingenious ways. Um, and so maybe if it's okay, I'll go to the 
that question. Mm-hmm. And I think you know that's a fascinating question because if there's life on other planets, on other stars, it's much more likely to be microbial than it is to be multicellular like us or other multicellular life forms. So you know, just looking at the Earth, I think it's completely extraordinary the extreme environments that microorganisms can inhabit. So whether it's extremely deep in the Earth and very hot places, very high in the atmosphere. In fact, even when um, um, uh, uh, spacecraft are sent out to other parts of the solar system or satellites, they have to be carefully disinfected because they'll take microorganisms with them that may not flourish but which will survive. So I think some people believe that there are traces of microorganisms even in the um, uh, the, the uh, rocks of Mars. Now, it's questionable whether that's really the case, but looking into the planetary system and thinking, well, are there microbes on Neptune? Are there any on Saturn? And finding or not finding them is, in fact, an incredibly interesting question because that would confirm whether life can exist anywhere but this planet. Those are the first things people will be looking for. But whatever niche you can find on this planet, even in sterilizers, you can find microorganisms. And I think that's the kind of amazing thing. They've got extraordinary capacities to live in every different situation we can imagine. Even if for some, say at the bottom of the ocean in the deep sediments, they might might take something like a thousand years to divide and make another generation. So that's very slow. They've got very limited nutrients, very high pressures, very cold, but they still survive, make a living, and reproduce. So perhaps you've got some ideas about where they might not be on the planet, but if that's the case, you'll be making a discovery. (laughs) Okay, we just have time for one more question on this from the third row. So you're trying to divide us and them. Um, Is it just, I guess, what cells have uh, our DNA, where microbes have a different DNA? Um, But um, if one looks at, uh, I mean, as an ecosystem, what what is the difference between cells with DNA from birth and, uh, and uh, microbes, and and also because some of our cells uh, are uh, not behaving, like let's say cancer cells, uh, are they us or are they do they become them or um, so wh- why this distinction? So m- most well, I guess microbes are predominantly bacteria which are prokaryotic cells. So the cell itself, the biology of the cell, is very different. So, for example, their cell wouldn't have a nucleus. The way it divides is is quite different compared to eukaryotes, right, which are a, a different group of life that sort of evolved separately. And the eukaryotes, there are also microbes. So yeast is an example of a eukaryotic microbe that whose biology is, is more similar to, to, say, a human cell. Um, and I guess what delineates a body, so what makes us, what makes me a single human being, is the origin of um, of my creation from a single cell, well, a pair of cells. Um, 
So when a cancer occurs, for example, that is essentially descendants of my first cells that uh, mutated. So these mutations are occurring all the time. So throughout your lifetime, mutations are, are happening all the time, as long as your cells are dividing. And it's simply that some of these mutations, especially when they accumulate, they lead to deleterious effects. So these cells are no longer keeping their growth in check, and they start to grow rogue, basically, so that where, where they're, they're expanding more than they are supposed to. So they're still your own cells, they're cells of your own body, but they're just not following the same rules as the other cells because of these mutations. Yeah, thanks. Uh, sorry, we don't. We have to move on. Sorry. Thanks very much, Sarah. I mean, it brings us nicely, I think, onto our second key question, which is about evolution, and the question of whether microbial evolution is essentially the same as evolution among bigger animals, whether the same ideas that explain social behaviour and cooperation among bigger animals can also explain cooperation among microbes, or whether we need new ideas. And to introduce us to that question, Kevin Foster. Thanks. Very good. Okay, so yeah, I was given the task of uh, discussing uh, how cooperation evolves in microbes, and indeed does it evolve in the same way as we understand it evolves in other organisms, particularly things like animals. Um, and um, I'm an evolutionary biologist, and indeed most of my career has been focused on the question of how cooperation evolves, and it's one of those nice sort of old questions as an evolutionary biologist, uh, for an evolutionary biologist to study, because it's one that you can go back to uh, dear Darwin and the origin of species. And um, he recognised that uh, cooperation between organisms was something of an interesting case for his theory. And I mean, if you take D Darwin sort of, you know, perhaps in... Uh, in, in uh, short shrift, you uh, think of the idea of sort of uh, competition among organisms and organisms trying to pass on their representation to the next generation, sort of uh, uh, at, at, at all else. Um, and this gives a very sort of competitive view, of course, of, of the natural world. But when we look at the natural world, and Darwin, of course, did this extensively, it was one of his great talents, you see uh, many cases where organisms will, will help one another. And in evolutionary terms, what we mean by cooperation here, um, it's not the sort of, uh, sort of intention that we often associate with the word cooperation when we're studying it uh, in humans. Um, but it's uh, the outcome, it's the effects of one organism on another. So if one organism uh, has a behavior or a trait that improves uh, the fitness of another, survival and reproduction, that's what we mean here by cooperation and indeed what Darwin means here when he discusses in this quote, um, which I'll read out because we're doing a, a podcast. Um, so Darwin uh, stated that if you can prove that any part of the structure of any one species um, had been formed for the exclusive good of another, it would annihilate my theory. And this is one of the beautiful things about Darwin's book, actually, is that not only does he lay out his argument, he also lays out a series of statements which would be fatal to his argument. And this cooperation was indeed one of them. So, but Darwin actually already had some good ideas about how cooperation evolved. Um, and they're very much mirrored in how we understand cooperation today. Um, and one of the things that you would notice if you were to study uh, social and indeed cooperative animals um, is... Uh, well, you might ask, what, what do all of these things have in common? Well, um, maybe you can't tell quite here, but what they all have in common is that they are family groups. And um, so what we tend to see is an association between, in nature between cooperation and family life. 
And so why is that important? Well, it's important for actually an obvious reason, at least, at least in hindsight, and that is that uh, your relatives actually are genetically similar to you, more genetically similar than the population. So there are certain cases uh, which, where it makes sense to actually invest in them reproducing and them passing on the, the genetic information that you have in common rather than you doing so. And this, this sort of uh, uh, is seen uh, at its strongest in something like the social insects, so something like uh, uh, social wasps. So in the middle panel here, which this is the European hornet, Vespa crabro, which I actually spent uh, many years studying as a PhD student. And um, in these insect societies, what you have is a, a family. You have a mother and then her daughter workers, and the workers give up their reproduction in order to help raise the offspring of the queen. Why are they doing that? Well, because they're raising their sisters, and raising their sisters and brothers actually turns out to be uh, genetically equivalent to raising their own offspring. So if there's a benefit from doing so, you already have a nice nest and a nice environment, it can well pay to help your relatives and invest in them rather than investing in yourself, evolutionarily speaking. Okay, so that's the, this is the idea that's often been called kin selection, and this was... Um, uh, uh, made famous by a chap called Hamilton um, in sort of one of the most cited papers in uh, evolutionary biology. Um, and he uh, was basically building directly on the work of people like R.A. Fisher, who were uh, responsible for the uh, modern synthesis, and basically extending the ideas of, of evolutionary biology to interactions between organisms within a family particularly. Okay, so that's kind of the background, and this is how we understand uh, the evolution of cooperation in many cases in animal groups. But, of course, today we're not talking about animals. We're talking about another group of organisms, um, uh, the microbes. And as, as Sarah so elo eloquently uh, uh, explained, you know, we now realise that microbes live in dense, uh, densely interacting groups, and they secrete all manner of factors into the environment that can help cells around them to uh, uh, survive and reproduce, but they also secrete things like antibiotics that kill other cells around them. And so they're these sort of densely interacting communities, and much of what they do both in terms of causing disease and other things, um, comes from their ability to actually uh, interact with one another and indeed ultimately with us. Okay, so we know that much is true, but then how can we uh, uh, translate these ideas of living in a family group to understand how and when microbes would, should uh, uh, cooperate? Well, we can do that um, with some simple cartoons. So... Um, uh, what I'm going to show you here, then, are just sort of uh, uh, some simple uh, ideas where we're going to mix together two different uh, strains of microbes, okay? We're going to have a red cell and a white cell. And our red cell is going to secrete a factor that helps everyone to grow. So it's going to make an enzyme, let's say, that breaks down some nice uh, complex molecule in the environment, and it'll snip it up, and the cell can bring in that molecule and, and feed. But in doing so, it's releasing the molecule to everyone around it. So our red cell is basically helping everyone to grow, Okay. We have our white cells in there too, and these white cells um, are not making uh, the enzyme, but they're happy to take up the molecule and feed on it. Okay? So now we're going to look at these under two conditions. Well, let's first look at them under a well-mixed condition. So what happens if these red and white cells are, uh, in, uh, are mixed uh, extremely well? Well, under those conditions, um, our red cells secrete this factor that breaks down food, but then everyone can use it. Okay? Both red and white cells can use it, but importantly, only the red cells are paying the cost of doing this. So, well, what happens? Well, we can expect in our simple model that over time the red cells do rather poorly because they've basically invested in everyone else's growth at their own cost. So that's not going to work. So under these conditions, we don't actually expect to see these microbes cooperating. 
By contrast, we can put them in a different scenario where we take our red cells and just put them in a little clump together. So now we have a little ball of red cells, all closely, uh, uh, close next to each other, surrounded maybe by a sea of white cells. Under these conditions, we can expect something rather different, because now when the red cells make their enzyme and break down the food, they get the lion's share. The, each red cell is helping other red cells to do it. And what we've basically created here is a little family group. So this is our family group at the level of microbes. It's a clone, as Sarah was saying earlier. And now we might expect these guys to do rather well, because they're the only ones that can basically break down the food source, and they'll, they'll grow out. So what have we done here? Well, we've recapitulated these sort of classic arguments from uh, evolutionary biology in, in microorganisms. And indeed, we now think that these arguments hold very well, um, such that we have a series of um, uh, studies showing now that under conditions where you have mixing, you can expect of genotypes, you can expect there to be competition, all else being equal. You might expect these guys to invest maybe instead in an antibiotic that tries to kill the other cells. Um, and under conditions of uh, clonality, you can expect at the scale of those, those little clonal patches them to invest in things that help everyone around them. So that's the basic ideas. And just to finish, I just want to actually show you a couple of movies. So what does cooperation actually look like in a microbe? I mean, I've shown you in a cartoon form. And this is uh, a nice example from my lab, uh, just of cooperation in a Petri dish. And what you're going to see are two strains. Um, on the right, the WT, it stands for wild type, so that's a normal strain of bacteria. This is a pathogen, Pseudomonas aeruginosa. And what this guy does is rather, rather uh, amazing. It secretes uh, a factor on, in, into the environment that pulls up water and allows it to swim through uh, uh, along the surface. So it basically does this sort of... It's a bit, a bit like creating an ice rink, I suppose, only it's swimming, actually, in the, in the water. It pulls water up out of the, out of the agar, in this case, and then swims. It's called, the process, confusingly, is called swarming. On the left, we've deleted the gene that allows them to make the factor that they swim through. So it basically can't make the, the, the factor. And I'll just uh, run the movie. And this is over hours, so it's not instant, but nevertheless a rather impressive phenotype for uh, 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 trait for, for microbes. So that's it. that guy swarms across the plate, and you can't see it, but it's making this big halo of a chemical that allows it to move. What's important is what happens when they meet. So when they meet, the other guy suddenly can make use of the secretion of the first strain, and suddenly it can move. And we've fluorescently labelled them so you can see here that that's actually what happened. So this is microbial cooperation, sort of, uh, as I say, in a Petri dish. Uh, on its own, the guy that doesn't make the factor can't move. But together, it can make use of the factor made by the, the normal strain, the non-mutant strain, and is able to move. Um, and you can also see here kind of the basic arguments of family life again, because if these two guys do indeed exist on their own, separately, by and large, as they did here, you can see that the red strain would do very well, because basically it has primary access to its uh, cooperative uh, 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 traits. By contrast, if the two are very well mixed and they meet each other, then the strain on the left can actually outcompete the strain on the right. But very finally, I just want to point out and remind you that, of course, it's not all about uh, cooperation uh, in the microbial world. They're also uh, very aggressive organisms, and they compete. And, of course, again, we see this in the animal world. Um, so, we, you know, as we know classically from our nature documentaries, where we have two polar bears fighting over a mate or, or kinds of other charismatic megafauna going at it over some particular resource. Um, but the same things happen in, in uh, microbial groups. And so I'd just like to show you a movie we've recently made in my lab, and in this case, what you're seeing are two colonies of the very familiar uh, bacterium E. coli. 
And so these colonies are, are different genotypes, and they both make weapons that kill the other, so they're both going to make toxins that attack the other. But what's very striking about um, this particular system is that they can detect the incoming attack of the other strain and respond in kind. So these two guys, basically, as they uh, grow together, will start to, you'll see them. So what we've done is we've engineered them to basically go green when they're turning on their weapons. And when they're turning on their weapons, they're doing so because they're, atte- they're detecting the attack of the other strain. And so I'll just run this movie. And so again, this is over uh, several hours. So they're just growing, and they're both making toxin. The guy on the left detects the other one first, and, and it starts to make more toxin, but that makes the other guy respond and make more and so on. And at the same time, within the colony, they're communicating to their clone mates that the attack is incoming, and so they basically spread this wave of information back, creating sort of these, these massive attacks against one another. And if you run this movie further, you would see more clearly, but basically in the middle is a massive no-man's-land-and-dead zone. So they've eliminated you know, billions and billions of each other's cells in this process. And indeed, if they don't have these amplifying responses, there's basically they can grow together quite nicely. So you can, you can, we can engineer these strains to not actually respond and not get sort of so aggressive, and then they'll grow quite happily next to each other. So we see many of the same <laughs> mistakes that are made in other societies being made here um, in real time in bacteria. Uh, and with that, I'll, I'll finish. Thank you. Thanks very much, Kevin. Uh, let's have some thoughts from the panel uh, on this. Sarah? So, so what, what do you think is what, what typically goes on in nature? Is it the example that you showed with, with the mutant? Because that was a mutant that you constructed specifically to make it cooperate. Or do you expect more competition? Yeah, so that's a very good question and one that we spend a lot of time thinking about. So um, so the, I think the answer is something which you anticipated, of course, in your introduction, which is that um, you know, microbes at the scale of a clone uh, certainly behave very cooperatively. So if you have a clonal, uh, clonally propagating group of microbes, um, at that level we expect them to be investing in one another uh, in, in a way that will maximize the sort of productivity of that group. But the moment you hit the line between that clone and the next one, then we expect more of what we just saw with our E. coli warfare. Because now you're different genotypes, and evolutionarily speaking, it's a different individual, if you like. And so there we expect a lot of competition. So I think the sort of metaphor of a microbial jungle is a good one. You know, if, you go to a, if you do go to a rainforest, um, then you know, basically you see a lot of intense competition between the tree species for space and light. You know, if a tree falls down, there's suddenly this uh, uh, intense competition to basically to take that spot. Um, and while not all microbes are competing over light, they are competing over nutrients coming in from above. And we think that they're very similar uh, in, in that respect, that they're really trying to fight for their territory and hold it. Another good analogy to microbial communities, I think, coral reefs um, and many of you may know you know corals um, are actually extremely aggressive at the sort of interfaces between the different uh, sort of uh, coral individuals so coral is like a meta individual again clonal and if you um, there's these beautiful time lapse movies where you show interactions over time between different corals and you know one of them is making a toxin and the other one sort of like um, trying to eat away simultaneously at it and if you speed up these things you see they're very very aggressive what looks like the sort of beautiful serene coral reef is actually full of strife but all the strife is going on at the boundary between these genotypes. And I think, I think uh, that's exactly how we should think about microbial groups. Um, so, so my questions are about... So you said, oh, this social evolutionary theory and um, 
that you want to find out, does it apply to microorganisms? But it seems to me there's a basic question there. Why wouldn't it? Why would we think that it mightn't apply to microorganisms? And you also said, and this is a sort of related question, you started off doing research with social wasps. Mm-hmm but you've somehow swapped to microorganisms. Now, why would you do that if you're finding the right results in the social world? So I think there's something there. You know, is there an expectation? Should we even think that microorganisms would somehow do it differently? Darwin himself thought microorganisms will evolve the same way that other organisms do. How has it happened that one might be surprised by them doing the same things as animals and plants? Yeah, so I think, I mean, one would... I was never... Yeah, when one goes on these pursuits, as I did as a postdoc, you're never expecting to disprove evolution proper, but you are wondering whether uh, the way we think about cooperation and cooperative evolution in animals will apply sort of wholesale can you translate it to microbes and uh, there are uh, and you can't completely you know one has to modify the theory and think about it a bit differently and I can give well a couple of examples I mean one thing about microbes we've discussed a lot is that they're clonal right so they will make these clonal patches and so that makes this sort of the society really most of the time in the absence of mutation an indivisible evolutionary unit which isn't the case of social wasps where they're, they're family members but they're not clones and they fight and kill each other under certain circumstances <laughs> and the other fascinating thing that microbes do that really mess with your head if you're an evolutionary biologist is what's called horizontal gene transfer and this is, the, this is sometimes called bacterial sex but it's rather different to, to um, the way that uh, sexual organisms as we know them sort of uh, mix up genetic information so if, uh, if, if humans have, have a baby then basically that's uh, a, a sort of a mix of two genomes complete genomes right that's, that's mixed up in, uh, in the offspring um, but what microbes can do is basically transfer just one gene across uh, from one cell to another um, just one little bit of the genome. And moreover, they can do it between species. So, you know, uh, the definition, whole definition of species in animals is based on the fact you don't pass DNA um, from one population to another. And yet microbe species can sometimes, you know, this is a big problem with antibiotics, um, you treat them with an antibiotic and you have one species that's resistant, that's completely harmless. But suddenly the sort of deadly pathogen that's next to it, that is a very different organism indeed, can pick up um, that factor, that just particular antibiotic resistance factor, and then suddenly cause, cause real problems. And that has, um, I mean, this goes back to the last question we had. That goes back to sort of uh, some interesting questions evolutionarily and philosophically of what is a bacterium? Because if, you know, because if they can, one species can just rapidly pick up a gene from another and swap it around, then which, you know, it, what's the unit? Is it, is it the whole cell or is it that locus that's moving between them or is it some, it's actually some, we think, some complicated combination of the two? So actually evolutionarily we're having to rethink some of our theories to, to accommodate this, this strange, strange thing that they do. I'm particularly glad you raised this issue of horizontal gene transfer. I mean, it also challenges what, what, what it is for two organisms to be relatives, right? That, you know, these organisms of different species could share genes with each other and so in a certain sense be relatives. Yeah, exactly, exactly, yes. So at that particular locus, say, let's say it's an antibiotic resistance enzyme that chops up a drug we're trying to treat them with. Um, at that locus, these two species can be viewed as sort of clones. But of course, the rest of the genome is very different and actually in conflict. And so you can get these very weird evolutionary relationships where one locus is wanting to do one thing in the genome and other bits are wanting to do something else. And so it gets, yeah, it's fascinating, uh, but it's a bit confusing still, evolutionarily speaking.
Great. So I'd now like to invite questions from the audience for Kevin on this topic of microbial evolution. Ideally, again, you know, three questions would be would be good. Um, do we have any questions for Kevin? One from the second row here. So my question. So yeah. So I mean, you mean how how often do we borrow from our understanding of human societies? Um, so I don't think we borrow directly from human societies very often, but we do borrow from the ideas that have been applied to human societies. So one of the sort of classic things that um, would be well understood here is, of course, economic game theory. You know, so John Nash and people like that, who uh, basically worked out a body of mathematics to understand what the best strategy is economically, um, given what other individuals are doing around you. Yeah. And so that body of theory got modified into evolutionary game theory. And evolutionary game theory doesn't ask what the best utility or the best sort of value you would get from a particular strategy. It asks which one would evolve, what's the highest fitness. But they're very closely related. The mathematics are very similar. And when we try and understand how a microbe evolves, we often we use evolutionary game theory logic. So we're using the same sort of basic theory of societies and, and such, but it's not that we would directly sort of borrow normally from human societies because human societies are very unusual in the natural world in many ways. Um, and so we might, however, borrow from a coral reef, as I did, or, or something like a, 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 an Amazonian jungle, at least intuitively, to try and think about how things might behave at the macroscopic scale. Because let's face it, we're all better at just thinking about things that we can see. And I think that, that helps us. Um, but yeah, humans are unusual in many ways. Um, and so it's, it's difficult, uh, typically, to borrow directly from them when studying uh, other social organisms. Maybe if I can, I can add to that. I guess what you want to do is sort of convert the currency to being um, reproductive fitness. So what you're thinking of is how much, if you're thinking of cooperation, essentially the way you measure it is how much does one organism contribute to making the other one make more offspring, right? So if one is there and the other one can make or more offspring, then there is cooperation between them. Right? So instead of thinking about it financially in economic terms, for example, here you're thinking about how many cells of each type will you end up with. And that's sort of the way we think about cooperation and conflict. So it's not really in terms of um, there's no um, intention, for example, to, to help another um, individual bacterium, but it's really you can just measure the effect in terms of cell numbers afterwards. And so... You asked the question about, you know, are we using our experiences about humans and human society to try and understand bacteria? And I assume you're thinking, oh, we could be sort of forcing a template on a very different way of living. And I think that's definitely a possibility. But the other thing that can happen is people can take what they've learned from microorganisms to try and better understand human society. And this is for cultural evolution, particularly the evolution of language. So the methods by which people have understood things like horizontal gene transfer between organisms, microorganisms that are utterly unrelated and how those, uh, sorry, how those microorganisms evolve both in a normal descent pattern but across 
between species, people have also used to try and understand the evolution of language because language has borrowings between it in the same way that you get borrowings from one microbial lineage to another. So those sorts of patterns have been incredibly helpful for understanding the evolution of human language. It's been done particularly about Pacific languages but also other language groups, European language groups. Again, yeah, it's 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 actually at the level of mathematics. So, you know, it's people build models, uh, mathematical models, and then reapply them to the new system. So, I think by going through mathematics, uh, you limit uh, the danger that one is sort of superimposing too much of one's sort of uh, assumptions about human society on on the little critters. Yeah. Do we have any further questions for Kevin? Um, yes. Just a question about the, um, the red and the white cells in your thought experiment. Um, the red ones grouped together because they were secretors, you defined them as such. If they'd been ingesters of secretions from their neighbours, it would have benefited them to not cluster together and they each one lost some neighbours on them. So it doesn't really show that they constitute. Um, uh, a social group, the fact that they're together and cooperating. They could be cooperating in a sense by spacing themselves out and separating themselves from each other. Yeah, so it's a very good point. Um, if you're a cooperator, you benefit by. Uh, being with other cooperators. If you're a non-cooperator, you benefit by being with other cooperators. Um, and so there is a tension uh, in the sense that, yes, that's right, um, the two parties, would one wants to mix and one doesn't, evolutionarily speaking. So what I didn't mention, and this is something we've worked on quite a lot, is actually the, the formation of those clumps actually occurs often uh, spontaneously as microbes grow, independently of whether they are a cooperating uh, uh, genotype or a non-cooperating one. So just by virtue of the fact that cells, these cells grow clonally, they commonly form these little um, sort of uh, 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 quilts, if you like, little patchwork quilts of different genotypes. Um, so in some ways, the f uh, there sometimes are feedbacks where if you cooperate, you would make more of a patch or not. But, but to, to a, a, a first approximation, you basically will get that structure actually naturally as microbes grow. And so that's kind of the way it, the way it sort of organizes. And then what that does is it favors the evolution of cooperation after the fact uh, in those systems. And so, um, but in a world where they're all mixed up, and we actually do this experiment, we have this... Uh, a rather nice experiment where if you let the microbes grow and form uh, patches, you can show the strains that make the enzyme that breaks down something, they'll do very well. But then we can just get like a pipette tip from the lab and mix them up. And just by disordering uh, the, the groups, you reverse the evolutionary process, in the, you put it in the other direction. And now the guys that are basically takers, they'll, they'll win in the system. So, so it really depends on how that spatial structure occurs uh, in the first place as to who gets sort of prominence. Let's have uh, one, one last question from the row. In the interest of the takers, to make the, uh, the red guys successful, because, I mean, if they overtake all the red guys, then they lose out. So it's in the interest of the whites to make the red successful? So that's a, a, very, a very interesting question. Um, <clears throat> the normal answer is, um, is that evolution is um, a very short-sighted process. 
And so actually, um, if you just take those two cell types and grow them together, and the white cell is dividing more rapidly because it's not paying the cost of cooperation but getting the benefit, it will just keep on increasing until it drives the red extinct and then itself extinct. And so this is what's been called evolutionary suicide um, in the literature. Um, so evolution can happily crank itself into sort of very, very bad uh, dead ends because it's not very, it doesn't have much foresight. Now, there are exceptions to that. There are cases uh, where this, this scenario happens again and again all the time, and they don't quite wipe themselves out when they do it. And so over time, you can start to evolve self-restraint, right? And you start to, start to realize that you're dependent, evolutionary speaking, dependent on this other strain, and that can be sort of the birth of actually evolution of cooperation between species, and we certainly see that. So it doesn't always go that way, that you know one guy um, uh, drives the other one extinct. But actually, in the first case, that's actually the prediction, because evolution doesn't see very far ahead. It just sees to the next generation, mostly. That actually goes back to your previous question about cancer, because that's essentially what happens in in cancer cells, is that there is some way for the body to keep in control the, the way that the cells are dividing, that they don't let the group go extinct, but then the cancer cells will keep going despite the fact that this will kill the host organism. Thanks very much, Kevin and Sarah. Let's move on now um, to our third key topic. Uh, I mean, this idea of spontaneous formation of clumps leads us on quite nicely, I think, because our third question is about the origins of big organisms like us. I mean, at one time, all life was microbial. Now it isn't. Now there are big, many-celled organisms. So in one way or another, they must have evolved out of microbial life. Uh, how did that happen? Maureen uh, O'Malley. Okay, so what I'm going to talk about is microbes and multicellularity, and particularly the origins of it, just as Jonathan has said. Now, some of you might think that, in fact, this is a kind of contradiction, because one, the definition of a microbe, whatever its structure, so there's different kinds of microbes. Some, as you've heard, are prokaryotic, so they don't have many of the compartments and cells. Others are eukaryotic, so they have cells like ourselves. But the very definition is that they're unicellular. What are they going to tell us about multicellularity? You might imagine they're going to tell us absolutely nothing. So I'm going to try and reverse that sort of expectation. First of all, let me just point out, there are many, many kinds of multicellularity. They, um, there's at least 25 kinds, and I've got some of them illustrated here. I'm happy to talk about any of those if people are interested. These are all in eukaryotic organisms. Many people uh, don't know that bacteria can also form multicellular structures. All of these are different kinds of multicellularity. All of them are very interesting. Some of them look similar, but they are independent origins. So you can see here all kinds of slime moldy things, things that look like slime molds but aren't. Over there you can see various kinds of algae, multiple origins of multicellularity, as well as the ones that we know about and are more familiar with. As Kevin said, the things we can see, we often feel more knowledgeable about more knowledgeable about. So plants, fungi, and animals are the classic multicellular kinds we know a lot about. I'm going to talk about metazoan multicellularity and its origins because it's close to home. We feel more familiar. We think we know a bit more about it. Now, here's a different evolutionary perspective. Rather than looking at the interactions that lead to evolutionary outcomes, instead, what I'm showing you here are the 
patterns produced by the evolutionary processes that Kevin was talking about. Now, metazoans, animals, like ourselves, are all multicellular, except for some very strange transmissible cancers that are, we won't talk about, but was a good, uh, we could have brought it up in the last discussion. I've got the four main groups of metazoans there, all right? There's one group I've got missing. It's only got one representative. It's a thing called Placozoa, and it, I just didn't have room. So these, if we look... Sorry, I have to go away from the mic. This is the beginnings of metazoan multicellularity, that red mm. node there. Periphera are sponges. Many people think the ancestor of sponges was the first animal. There's a little bit of a competing hypothesis with tenophora, which are comb jellies, and they've got nervous systems. Sponges haven't. How could you have something with a nervous system coming first? Well, we're going to leave that question aside. What I want to look at first is the next node, the ancestor of the group that has unicellular and the beginnings of um, multicellular metazoans. This is coanoflagellates. Now, many people have thought, since the 1880s at least, that coanoflagellates probably, their ancestors, probably have something to do with the ancestral state of animals. Why? Because they look so similar. If you look at the coanoflagellates, a unicellular organism, quite a sophisticated one, it's got these very nice collars. They use them to feed with. They filter food in. They can eat by it. Sponges are pretty basic animals. They've only got a few types of cells, but one of their cell types, the feeding type inside the tubes, are cells very similar. So people have said, oh, we can make an evolutionary hypothesis out of this, that the ancestor of coanoflagellates shared an ancestor with, the, with metazoa. And the other thing people have often said is, this is about evolution by complexification. Simple coanoflagellates somehow became complex metazoans. Well, that may not be the case. So, back to that cartoon tree again. So here we've got four of the main groups of metazoans and coanoflagellates, all right? So there... Um, we call coanoflagellates the sister group of the metazoans because its living relative today is our closest relative if we think of ourselves as representing metazoans. If we push further back in evolutionary time, okay, so going further back to the previous divergence point, what we find is that the living ancestor of that organism is something called Capsospora. Capsospora, we should think, okay, whatever its ancestor was, it's got to be more primitive than the organisms that gave rise to what became animals. So that's the way we'd normally think. And when we look at Capsospora, there's nothing to get too inspired about. It's a blobby thing. Look up there in the corner. So a sort of round, blobby thing. It doesn't even have tails like many bacteria and many other eukaryote microorganisms will have. But from time to time, or quite frequently, in fact, it grows these thready things called philopodia. Quite what it's doing with them, it's a unicellular organism, isn't initially clear. It grows lots of them. It's investing in them. What happens is, because it's close to its 
family, the rest of its family, so other cells that have divided, they start to stick together. They stick closer and closer together until they form some sort of multicellular thing whereupon something happens. It's not completely clear. They've got genes that would allow them to have sex and do um, meiotic division, which is the special feature of cells like ourselves. But they reproduce as unicellular organisms again, and then they go off and live their unicellular lives. Well, you know, okay, microbes aren't as interesting for most of us as metazoans. But when you do genome analyses, so you take the genomes of a bunch of metazoans, of animals, of the coanoflagellates and of capsospora, one of the very, very interesting things you find is that the ancestral state, the state from which all these things started diverging, is very complex. It has many more genes than coanoflagellates have. Coanoflagellates, in fact, lost 2,000 genes. So in their evolutionary process, they started off complex and they jettisoned a whole bunch of genes. So we don't have here a straightforward story of evolution by complexification. So they became simpler. Now, metazoans retained those genes, the ancestor of metazoans, and then complexified further. But we've got this interesting simplification thing we need to take into account. And one of the things it says is, if we want to understand multicellularity properly, we can't look at the closest relatives. We can't look only at metazoans. We've got to go further back in the evolutionary history of unicellular organisms. And as the genome of Capsospora has been analyzed, one of the very, very interesting things found out is that genes and capacities that were thought special to animals, genes that allow animal cells to stick together, to signal and to control the development, to regulate what those uh, different cells are doing in an animal body, this unicellular organism has been found to have all of those genes. So that means we need some kind of explanation. What's going on with those genes? And it tells us something about evolution, that genes that look like they're special to us for particular functions actually had other functions in earlier lineages. It's only the unicellular organisms that could tell us about what those other functions might have been. Now, Capsospora, you can see, has this quite complex life cycle and t makes use of those genes in interesting ways, but it doesn't do them in the same way that metazoans do. Carnoflagellates, on the other hand, the middle ones, the closer group to metazoans, lost them. Why is that? Well, maybe because they don't do multicellular life cycles to the same extent, it wasn't useful for them. They lost those things. They didn't have any other use to put them to. They abandoned those genes. But the main message of the story is, if we want to understand the origins of our kind of multicellularity, which we might feel is very special, we need to look at more and more unicellular organisms that can tell us about the ancestry states well back in the past. So, what it say here is we can learn a lot from microorganisms, even when we don't expect it. Yes, of course, we can learn about microbial life and evolution, but in a different way from how Kevin and Sarah were doing. So they're saying we can use microorganisms to understand evolutionary more general, and I'm saying we can use it to understand an actual evolutionary history as well of non-microbial life and its evolution, even our own evolutionary history. So that's where I'll stop. Thank you.
Thanks very much, Maureen. That's great. I'd like to invite some thoughts from the rest of the panel on this. Sarah, would you like to? Yes, I, see. I think it's quite interesting the point that you raised about the evolution of complexity, that evolution is not always going in one direction, that you're starting with simple things and then as you go on over time things become more complex. And I think a nice um, or nice evidence of that is also how all these species can coexist and co-survive. So the very simple, relatively simple microbes that we study have not all gone extinct because more complex organisms have replaced them. And indeed, evolution goes back and forth between complexity and simplicity in order to have ecosystems that contain, contain all of these organisms at the same time. Yeah. And the, the organisms, the yeast, the unicellular fungi that Sarah mentioned before, they're a fantastic example of an organism that once, many millions of years ago, was multicellular gave up multicellularity to go back to a unicellular life. So it reversed it. You know, it's, it, there just weren't enough advantages for it. It had good reasons to go backwards. Some of the green algae also have attained multicellular states and gone back to unicellular ones. So there's lots and lots of simplification going on in evolution too. So, yeah, so I, I was interested um, in the capsosporins because uh, I haven't heard about these guys before. So I know that with coanoflagellates, um, sometimes they live solitary and sometimes they make little colonies that are thought to be stimulated by the presence of bacterial prey that they sort of, like, waft in and try and eat. At least that's the idea. Um, so that would argue, uh, if, if it was about the coanoflagellates, that the origin of sponges came from sort of a collective hunting type, you know, uh, function, um, which, of course, we don't know, but it's a speculation. So with the capsosporins, do we know why they make their, like, uh, ball of cells? Uh, what's the evolutionary function? And can that give us insights into why the first multicellular organisms evolved in animals? Mm. Yes, yeah, so... I think what Kevin's talking about generally here is it's not, there aren't clear evolutionary reasons for being multicellular. And so you can't say definitively. Organisms take up multicellularity because of a particular advantage. Sometimes that, you know, people speculate, oh, it's, it's easier to get away from predators, or if you're very big, predators can't swallow you up. So if you become multicellular, it's that if the other organisms that were, might have been eating you, if they can't swallow you, then you've got an advantage. Or it might help you... Um, uh, to get the things you need to eat. Now, in the case of Capsospora, that doesn't seem to be the case. It seems to be a reproductive strategy. If you look at many of these microorganisms that have very complex life cycles, so we have simple life cycles. Many unicellular eukaryotes have extremely complex, multiple morphologies life cycles. They do all kinds of things. They become multicellular, unicellular. They have many forms of unicellularity. They re reproduce in three or four different ways in these things that are called life cycles. So perhaps what we can say, all we can say at the moment, I think, about Capsospora is that because it's engaged in one of these quite complex life cycles, it's using the state to regulate and organize these, this multicellular blob of things working together, but they're putting that uh, multicellularity 
pursue a reproductive um, aim, and when that aim is met, there's more unicells, they they disperse again. So maybe one of the things we could learn from that is multicellularity might just be a frozen evolutionary accident in some lineages. So I have a sort of question about this. That um, when we look, when we think of multicellular organisms evolving, and we, we think about the organism, we think of all this complexity emerging. But when you look at the individual cells, it sometimes seems like the cells just get less and less complex. And so you end up with things like our red blood cells don't even have a nucleus. Uh, you know, so many of our cell types have, have lost bits compared to microbes. Is that fair? Is this a story about? complexity at larger scales coming at the expense of complexity at lower scales, or is it more complicated than that? I mean, you know, the red blood cell is a bit tricky because they jettison the nucleus in the mitochondria. So it's an extreme case. Yes, but, but they have them. They developmentally get rid of them. But, um, um, I mean, I think that's interesting. I think what you can see in, let's say, the evolution of animal multicellularity is a streamlining of strategies. So as organisms get larger and they in that respect, are able to control more of their environment. They're able to streamline some of the complexity that the unicellular ancestors had because they have less control over their environment. So maybe you've got a sort of trade-off there that you, if you control your environment better, you can actually then get yourself into, in some respects, a larger but a simpler state. If you can't control your environment quite as well, you're you've got no choice but to remain in a complex state, able to deal in many different ways with an environment that you just haven't quite got the same grips on. I guess a question for the whole panel, really. Should we be thinking of big organisms like ourselves as just societies, just a kind of society of cells? Or are there better ways of thinking about it? I think, I think, I think yes. I think following up on this question, what's happening in the body is that you would end up with a division of labor. So maybe in an individual microbial cell, every cell has to be able to move around and to eat and to fight its neighbors, etc. But perhaps if you were part of a larger group, then you could divide these tasks. And that's what happens in a larger organism, that cells are there for different purposes. So you would have the red blood cells, and then you have you know, the cells are, that are responsible for reproduction of the organism, etc. So not every cell has to be able to do everything, but you can sort of divide the labor and simplify each one so that they specialize. And I guess that this something similar would happen in a microbial society, but just at a lesser, to a lesser extent. Differences of degree. And I think one of the things that probably many people here know is all of us are a microbial society in most respects. We're full of microorganisms. And that's something that recent molecular research is telling us more and more about. Our gut has got many, many millions of microorganisms, several hundred species, all of them actually not necessarily carrying out essential functions, but doing things that often we've given up doing because we've got microorganisms there. We develop our entire lives long with these organisms that weigh you know, maybe two or three kilos if you were to take all the microorganisms out of your body and weigh them separately if you could. We, we can't even imagine a human life without these organisms. So in a respect, it, it comes back to this ecosystem question. We're a microbial ecosystem 
we're a functioning organism part of that, but we are a society in ourselves, each single human body. Great, so I'd now like to invite questions from the audience for Maureen about this general topic of the origins of multicellular organisms, where we come from. Are we just societies of cells? Question from the third row from the back. It's just a, the environment was very different um, way back um, th- millions of years ago. How do you know the, 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 the microorganisms were the same as they are now? So... Um, so one of the things that has to be done, and this has taken molecular evidence to do, is there's a lot of techniques for inferring how the DNA content of all microorganisms and other organisms has changed over time. You have to use models to do it, how much the various um, nucleotides would have changed. And what you can do is extrapolate backwards using other bodies of evidence to help confirm that as to the gene content. Now, one of the useful things about um, at least bacteria, but also many of the smaller microorganisms, is you can infer from the content of the genes that the organisms had what they were able to do. So you can see, assign certain functions to those inferred genes. So you can do that now. You can look at the genome. And you can say, look, we see genes here for breaking down complex um, um, starches. If you infer back in evolutionary history and you say our most probable state for that organism is it didn't have those genes for, let's say, breaking down the complex starches, but it had genes for metabolizing in a different way, then what you can imagine is because it had those genes, this is what it was doing. Now, in the case of things like Capsospora, it doesn't seem there are that many differences from its ancestral state. It's lost a lot of genes, actually, even Capsospora, not as many as Carnaflagellata, but it's still lost some genes. However, those genes are all to do with, not with metabolism, but with how it regulates its genome and the kinds of genes it turns on at different times. So there are inferences being made. It's not that we've got sort of living fossils now because they've changed, but there are good inferences techniques for going back. One from the very back row. Thank you. <coughs> um, I'm not really sure how to phrase this as a question, but when a human is declared medically dead, um, how long does all the cells continue to be alive, and when are we actually fully dead? Ooh. Well, it depends. If we're thinking, of, as I've just said, of that we are actually a microbial society. So the human cells may not be functioning for very long, right? Because they need en- constant energy to keep going. They need certain um, uh, input from the environment to be physiologically active. But the microorganisms in our body get very active at death time. So some of them, of course... Uh, don't have quite the same trajectory. They might not find it quite so convenient. But, as you know, many things start to happen when a person dies. And one of them is that you get a process of decomposition as the microorganisms in the body and also on the outside of the body begin to work in very different ways with the cells of the human. So while the human is alive and functioning, then we can see there's a an interaction that keeps those microorganisms at a certain, let's say, uh, uh, non-harmful state. 
perhaps one of the ways in which you can say a human is dead is when those microorganisms take over so completely that there is no longer a recognisable human being left. Yeah, I was just going to say, as Kevin said earlier, we are their dinner. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and a uh, question from Coming back to a bit to the epigenetics question I had earlier on, when you had your white and pink cells, um, you could imagine that if the white cells occasionally produced a pink one, that would actually be rather a nice system because they could sort of sp- spread some pink ones among themselves and, and benefit from those pink ones, and they might even regulate how many pink ones they were going to be producing. Yeah. So that, that, would, that would be a system where... It's a bit like a stem cell, perhaps, in one of our, our bodies. Mm-hmm. Is that sort of thing seen in bacterial systems? Yeah, very much so. So, yeah, I, I need to distinguish uh, sort of between two scenarios there. Of course, the genetic one, where those two cell types are different strains or different species of microbe. Um, and there, what we're talking about when we see an increase in the red one is actually the evolutionary process. You know, the red guys are out-competing the white ones. And if that keeps happening, then eventually you would lose the white ones and be left with the red or vice versa. Um, but, of course, then there's the question of what happens within a single genotype. And that single genotype, is, as we've discussed, can be viewed in some ways as like a multicellular organism. It's a multicellular clump. And then you have a different question, and that question is, how do we best organise ourselves for maximum efficiency? Is it best that everyone does a little bit of cooperation, you know, make a little bit of enzyme? Or is it better that we have specialists, factories, enzyme factories, that are peppered around our, our, our group, or maybe at the very edge where the food is? Um, and we, we, in those cells, they make a lot of the enzyme, and everyone else just sort of shares in it. Um, and that's more of a question of organisation. And there's no evolution going on, because genetically that group is all the same. You're not seeing a change. And, and one isn't out-competing the other. Um, but they are trying to organise. And, um, yes, microbes certainly do that. So um, often when we look at a, a trait, a social trait, as we call it, one where they're doing something for the good of their clones, some cells will express it more than others. Um, ad absurdum, this occurs, actually, the final video I showed you, um, those guys, uh, two E. coli con- colonies, now they were at war with each other, but within the colony, of course, they're in some ways cooperating with each other to make the antibiotic that attacks the other one. Now, it turns out to make those antibiotics, they have to actually uh, explode. They're um, sort of suicide bombers, if you like, of the microbial world. Um, and and uh, in order to do that, then, like, it's a very poor strategy if everyone does it. Um, it becomes like uh, the end of the life of Brian, if anyone knows that <laughs> reference. Um, but... Um, yeah, so you don't want everyone to do it. And so there it becomes critically important that only some cells actually engage in the suicidal act of making the antibiotic that attacks the other one, and they regulate that very carefully indeed. Yeah. Thanks. So let's um, wrap all this up now by thinking about what I see as the, the philosophical question that ties all these topics together in a way, which is what can we learn from microbiology about what it is to be human? I mean, we've heard at least two ideas that relate to that question in a very direct way. I mean, one is this thought that we can learn from our our understanding of microbial evolution about human evolution and about the evolution of language and about how human cultures evolve. And the other idea is this thought that we are microbial societies. You know, 95% or whatever of our cells are microbial cells. We are this ecosystem of gut flora and other symbionts. So is it fair to say that microbiology causes this profound transformation in our understanding of what it is we are and where it is we come from, or is that an exaggeration? 
Um, Maureen, thoughts on this? I mean, I guess this comes back to you know my curiosity about why people are here in the first place. I mean, are you all feeling microbial yourselves? I mean, <laughs> is that what's brought you here? You sort of feel you've got to make sense of what you really are, or are you sort of seeing microorganisms as somehow something out there that might be interesting to know about scientifically? I mean, I don't think, you know, speaking for myself, that usually we, we feel of ourselves as uh, that we're microbial in nature. Now, I could be wrong. I'm kind of, I really am curious to hear how, how people think about this sort of question. Um, contemporary science is telling us a lot, both about our evolutionary history and about our ecological reality and how microbial both of them are. But whether that changes anything in our sort of deeper thinking about what it is to be human, I think, is another quite separate question. And what's the answer to the question? <laughs> Let, let's not preempt what people might have to offer on that, but, uh, because I want to hear, you know, how whether people think this is actually a, 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 you know, a genuine viable question. I mean, do people feel like you are a microbial society? Is that what you feel like? Is that what you when you wake up in the morning? Do you think yes, me and my microbes? I mean, <laughs> okay, well, let's have thoughts from Sarah and Kevin. Uh, I just wanted to, to bring back this point of how much microbes are part of us as humans, just because it seems more and more now that that people are discovering what, uh, how microbes can also change behavior. So, for example, the state of your of the of the gut of your your gut microbes does also influence, for example, things like depression. So your own behavior can be affected by the microbes. And there have been some really nice examples as well in, um, in other organisms like, like fruit flies where their mating behavior changes depending on the microbes. Um, so so there, I think we're just starting to see to what extent these microbes are really affecting how we behave and how, how, we, how we are alive. And I think... This will become interesting in the years to come as we as we understand this. So uh, yeah, so I, I um, it's good as we haven't had much disagreement. Uh, so I mean I yeah I, I I find that at the moment it's fascinating to find out how many microbes we carry, their complexity, and how much they affect us. So this is uh, that notwithstanding, um, you can take a mouse um, and remove all of its microbiota. Um, and it, you know, it can be a little bit sad sometimes and uh, not eat as well and you have to give it a special diet. But it's still very much a mouse. Um, and um, equally, the experiment hasn't been done with us, but you, can do, you could almost certainly do the same thing with us. You would be a bit sickly, but everything that you know about yourself, more or less, um, would be, uh, at least uh, we're talking philosophically, what it is to be human, much of that would be maintained. So I think it's important not to overstate uh, how much the microbes do actually uh, uh, affect our very being in the sense of what it is to be human. But that doesn't mean that they're not uh, very important and fascinating in their own way. But it's very much a symbiotic relationship. We carry around these passengers, and these passengers are complex, and we're only just starting to understand that complexity. And indeed, I find it extremely fascinating. Um, but the idea that we would be fundamentally affected uh, in our identity itself, I think, might be going a little bit too far. Um, but I'm happy to provoke uh, in my statements. Mm -hmm. yeah. What about these parasites like toxoplasma that mm -hmm. go into the brain and uh, yes. arguably have effects on personality? Yes. 
So I do think things like that are more tenable arguments to something that would affect us, but that's a pathology. Um, so, yeah, so diseases for a long time, we've known diseases affect behaviour. Um, when you have a strong infection of a single parasite, it can be in their interest to make us behave in certain ways. Um, you know, potentially sneezing and such is a very simple one. Uh, but that's very different from the sort of healthy state of the microbiota, where I'm currently very cynical that there's many, uh, going to be many good examples of them manipulating our behaviour. So we have time for maybe one or two questions on this issue. Front row, and then we'll go to yeah, the back row. Um, as human beings, we've got the ability to think. Do you think any microbes out there might be able to think like us? Or think in some manner? Um, so, I mean, so I mean, the short answer is no, of course. Um, but, but, um, but no, I mean, so well, the question is, what can microbes do? So, what is thinking? Uh, I mean, if you abstract uh, thinking to uh, a level of a microbe, really, it's about input-output relationships. It's detecting the environment and then making a sensible choice about what to do in that environment. So, you detect an attack from another bacterium and you upregulate your own attack and fight back. So it's not thinking, there's no nerves involved, but we do see, nevertheless, what you might consider to be a sort of rational strategy displayed by single cells. So, so at the level of sort of evolutionary strategies, um, there is, you can imbue on them this idea of thinking, but of course it's done uh, sort of in a very simple sort of chemical regulatory way. And, and there's very nice experiments with a kind of yellow slime mold called Physarum polycephalin, um, maze navigation. And you can see these organisms swarm into the maze, check this, oh, doesn't work, come back, go back the other way. They're in search of um, porridge, of oatmeal, and uh, uh, they love it, and they'll do anything. They'll jump big gaps, they'll navigate very complex mazes, they make decisions this way, that way, not this way, let's go backwards. And they do that repeatedly, you can see it. Very, so you get decision-making, but whether it's cognitive, emotive thinking, that's something else. But we get the basics of being able to make decisions. Let's have one last question from the back row. Um, I'm interested to know about the evolution of um, organelles such as mitochondria and chloroplasts. Were they microbes? Uh, yeah, yes, okay. Another <laughs> good short answer. Yes, so very clearly um, the uh, mitochondria came from rickettsia, a group of uh, free living bacteria, and uh, chloroplasts came from cyanobacteria, again, free living. Um, so, yeah, it's now, uh, it, for many years it was controversial uh, whether or not they were indeed uh, uh, microbes because they, they looked like them and people definitely, definitely speculated on this. Lynn Margulis is the famous uh, 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 proponent of endosymbiont theory, as it's called. Um, but now, definitively, we can say that they are, and it's kind of fascinating, yeah. Um, and there's other curious things like um, chlamydia, which is a much more sinister um, a, a bacterium is actually also related to cyanobacteria and chloroplasts. So, so it's not the case that all of these bacteria that became associated with us were always nice. Some of them were rather nasty. Um, so, yeah. Thanks very much. And let's just have a finish off with a show of hands on Maureen's question. Who feels microbial? <laughs> Oi, good for you. But a few, still a small minority, but maybe that will change. All right. Okay. When you die, anyway. Uh, yeah. That's all we have time for. Let's, uh, let's finish by thanking our panelists for very much.